it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, March 1st, 2022. Welcome into the Tony Snow studio at Fox News Bureau here in Washington, D.C. I'm Guy Benson. We welcome you to a new month here on the program, Turbulent Waters, for now and probably the foreseeable future, and we will have you covered as best we can every single day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. And if you can't catch us as we air live, there's a podcast that is free every day, on demand, GuyBensonShow.com. That's GuyBensonShow.com. If you don't know me, I'm the political editor at TownHall.com. I'm a Fox News contributor. I'll be on Special Report tonight part of the panel with Brett Bayer and company in the back half of the 6 p.m. hour Eastern time. Also host of this daily radio show, and we are locked and loaded for today's edition. Here is the lineup. General Jack Keane joining us later this hour. The latest militarily. His perspective from what's happening, the 40,000-foot perspective and also on the ground He is the best person I think we have here to synthesize that information for us, what's happening in Ukraine. Josh Krasauer, we were supposed to talk to Josh yesterday, but Jen Griffin was able to join us, our national security correspondent here at Fox. So Josh was moved to today, which actually works out well because it's also a political day here at home. The State of the Union address is tonight from President Biden, technically his first State of the Union address. Last year's was just a addressed to a joint session of Congress. He had just taken office. Josh will help us preview that, give us some thoughts on the political terrain in the United States ahead of that speech. Mark Thiessen will also be here in the next hour. Mark is a colleague of ours. He's a Washington Post columnist, but he was the chief presidential speechwriter for George W. Bush. So we will glean some insight from him into the preparation of a speech of this importance and magnitude, especially at a moment in time where the world, I think, will be hanging on every word of the president of the United States. It is a wartime State of the Union, not directly for the United States in terms of troops and uh, you know active engagement, but this is very much a wartime speech in a lot of ways. We will ask Mark about how things might change in the writer's room at the White House leading up to an event like this based on the events unfolding halfway across the world. In our final hour here, our happy hour, 5 p.m. Eastern, we will remain quite serious today for obvious reasons. U.S. Senator Ben Sass, Republican of Nebraska, will be joining us on Ukraine and Russia. Also, the Supreme Court nominee, he's a member of the Judiciary Committee, Sass is, will get his thoughts on President Biden's pick for the high court, plus A vote last night in the U.S. Senate on late-term abortion, and the results are in some ways rather shocking. We will get to that later in today's program and get reaction from Senator Sass. And last but not least, our final guest today will be Martha McCallum. 
She is here in town. She's hosting her show right now live, of course, on Fox News Channel, The Story. She's doing it from Washington, D.C., because she and Brett Baer will co-anchor tonight's team coverage of the State of the Union Address on Fox News Channel. That will be in the 9 p.m. hour. And then, of course, the response will come from the Republicans. It's Governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa who will be giving the GOP reply or rebuttal to President Biden. Fox News alert as we begin the show. Stats on COVID, 78.9 million cases confirmed, the real number significantly higher than that. The death toll, people dying with or of COVID in the United States over these last two years, now 948,855. The Dow down today over 500 points, currently down 508 to 33,384. As we come on the air, we will also bring you some more Fox News alerts and this breaking news coming out of Ukraine. There has been escalated shelling today of various Ukrainian cities, including Kharkiv in the northeast. I just saw some new video come in on one of our competitors. Another channel had video, and we had a different video as well on Fox News Channel of apartment buildings on fire, civilian areas being bombed and shelled by the Russian military. In one of the videos, you could see in the foreground a young girl walking with a parent, looking very distressed, obviously wearing a winter coat. These are men, women, and children. There's another video that shows cars getting blown up as a rocket lands in the middle of a civilian square. These are just innocent people trying to go about their day, now dead. There are reports, according to the Ukrainians, of five killed in a Russian attack near or on the TV tower in Kiev. That's another significant development today. U.S. officials on background gave a briefing earlier this afternoon to a number of journalists. It might have been actually late this morning, but it was earlier today. And here's what we have gathered from that briefing, just a few pieces of information. That convoy of Russian tanks and armored vehicles and artillery It's now, and this has been news for the last 12 to 18 hours, it's now reached 40 miles in length. And people wonder why can't they just go blow up this convoy, right? It's just a a long line of stalled or slow-moving machinery, but it's not that easily done, right? It seems, in theory, easy, but Ukraine has a very limited air force to begin with, And they do not have control of the skies. The Russians don't either completely, but it's not like they can just carpet bomb a target easily. Other military apparatus probably could, right? If NATO got involved, then you'd be at war with Russia. So no one's really advocating that right now. But these are sitting ducks. And that 40-mile-long convoy is, quote, not moving at great speed per U.S. officials. And it seems that at least some of the vehicles in those columns have run out of gas. We learned earlier that U.S. security assistance continued to flow into Ukraine within the last 24 hours. President Biden authorized a $350 million aid package, military aid package, just last week. 
And some of that aid is now arriving in Ukraine. That includes Javelin missiles that have been actually quite important and quite significant when it comes to some of the attacks that the Ukrainians have successfully launched against the Russians. And we've seen some of those images. We've also seen, this is what the U.S. believes, that Russia did not tell some of its troops that have been sent into Ukraine that they would be going into combat. So this was a surprise mission. Some of these are conscripts, very young men who are not well trained. And the U.S. has gathered that there have been at least some relatively large scale surrenders by these Russians. A significant number, say U.S. officials, of the more than 150,000 Russian troops are very young men drafted into service who are not prepared. And some of them have simply surrendered. Morale is low, but... The balance of power and the amount of sheer force remains on Russia's side. So this is certainly not a time for triumphalism if you're rooting for Ukraine, which we are here. But it is amazing the amount of resistance being put up and some of the, frankly, incompetence, ineptitude, creakiness of the Russian military. Now, there is this speech tonight from President Biden. We'll be watching it closely. We'll be previewing it on special report tonight. But to me, the most important speech perhaps in the world today was delivered by a different president, President Zelensky. He was addressing the EU parliament, the European Union Union parliament. That was earlier this morning, and he gave a stirring address. I want you to hear some of it, including cut one. When I was running for the president, I'd say that each of us is a president because all of us carry the responsibility for our country, for our beautiful Ukraine. And now it happened so that each of us is a warrior, a warrior in his or her right place. And I'm sure that each of us will win. Glory to Ukraine. He goes on and addresses the people of Russia in cut two. Why do you need all of this, you Russian moms, you Russian teachers? Russian entrepreneurs, just regular people. Why do you need this? Already 4,500 Russian soldiers are killed. For the sake of what? Drop your equipment and leave. Don't believe your commanders, your propaganda people. Just save your lives and leave. Each hour, we strengthen our country. Later in the speech, there was another male interpreter who was translating, and he, the translator, got choked up as he was listening to what Zelensky was conveying to those members of the European Parliament. And at the end of the speech, he was urging the EU to allow Ukraine to enter that bloc, to join the European Union. He said the EU is going to be much stronger with us. That's for sure. We have proven our strength. He said, prove that you are with us, is what Zelensky told them. Prove that you will not let us go. Prove that you are indeed Europeans, and then life will win over death, and light will win over darkness. Glory be to Ukraine, he concluded, to a huge ovation. And minutes later, there was a vote to advance Ukraine's entry into the EU. The vote passed overwhelmingly, 637 to 12. All of this, of course, will be a significant theme in tonight's State of the Union address here at home in Washington, D.C., just steps from where 
we're broadcasting from today at the D.C. Bureau of Fox News Channel, where we as a team are bringing you the absolute latest as all of this is happening, and it's a very fast-moving situation. When we come back, Brett Baer is going to swing by the studio. He has been doing yeoman's work. He's been all over the news channel. He has the very latest from his perspective. Brett Baer in studio next as we get going in a very busy Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. At the top of the show, we give you all the guests. We didn't list our next guest because he's a surprise last-minute addition to the lineup. Brett Bayer, who, of course, is chief political anchor for Fox News, anchor of Special Report, every evening, 6 p.m. Eastern weekdays on Fox News Channel. I'll be joining the panel tonight. And, Brett, it's great to see you. A wonderful surprise for us. You know, I was walking down the hall. I said, wait, guy's on right now. And I was walking to go get makeup because I'm on Martha's show in a bit. And I just got back from the White House, and I said, why don't I pop in and say... Hello to Guy Benson. That is extremely kind of you to do, and you come with news because, as you just said, you were at the White House, an off-the-record conversation with President Biden, sort of preparing major news anchors for what he's going to try to do tonight in the State of the Union address. There's only so much you can really tell us. Yeah. Uh, How would you characterize this briefing? So first of all, it's, you know, tradition. Uh, The Anchors who are covering the State of the Union go to the White House. Every president, Republican and Democrat, has done this. Uh, Didn't do it last year with lunch because of COVID. Uh, It was much different. It was kind of uh, very separated and still got a a little bit of a sense of things. But usually it's an off-the-record discussion. Uh, Today there were nine anchors, and um, it was in the Blue Room of the White House, and uh, the president uh, came in. And basically kind of gave a preview of the speech and his feelings of things. He's upbeat but somber about this, uh, about what's happening in Ukraine. Ukraine is going to lead the speech. Senior officials have have talked about that. Uh, And the one on the record quote that he gave in the kind of Q&A, we asked for it to be on the record, had to do with uh, characterizing Ukraine in this speech. And he said this, quote, the only thing that I think is important that I'm going to talk about that I can talk with you now about is my determination to see that the EU, NATO and all of our allies are on the same exact page in terms of sanctions against Russia and how we deal with the invasion. And it is an invasion of Ukraine. Because that's the one thing that gives us power to impose severe consequences on Putin for what he's done. And one of the few things that I'm confident he's going to have to think twice about long term as this continues to bite. So it's the unity of NATO and the West. That part's on the record. The rest of the stuff can't really characterize on substance, but can tell you, you know, this is the first official State of the Union address. So there's a lot of topics to cover And he plans on covering them, which means to me, reading through the lines, it could be a long speech. Especially (laughs) if they've rewritten the beginning. I will take the over. To be on Ukraine (laughs) and Russia. 
Now, he did speak today with President Zelensky for over half an hour, right, by phone. And he arrived at that lunch right after that phone call finished. Wow. So perhaps you learned some things about that that you cannot impart upon me or the the listeners right now. But that's that timing is fascinating. Yeah, I can't. uh, But I can tell the White House readout uh, of what, you know, he talked about. uh, And it was a long conversation. And you can imagine uh, President Zelensky in a bunker um, somewhere waiting, you know, watching Russia attack um, Kharkiv in the northeast and um, and Kiev where he is with bombs uh, asking for a number of things from the West. I saw a tweet earlier today from the deputy press secretary at the White House touting some CBS polling about a lot of unity among the American people, anti-Russia, anti-Putin consensus, and then a lot of support for Ukraine, sanctioning Russia, sending aid to Ukraine. And the White House officials said this is the latest data showing the president has unified the country with his response to Russia's heinous attack on Ukraine. And I wonder, I mean, is that what they're really going with over there, that President Biden has unified the country? Because you can say he's done some things well, some things not so well, in my opinion. It's a mixed bag. But I don't think the unity has been driven by the president. Is that the type of tone you were getting from them today? Yeah. As far as unifying this country, I think he was talking more about unifying the NATO allies and the EU to speak to this. And that is, uh, you know, you can give them credit for that to to get all of the herd. All those cats uh, is is a tough job. And um, so you can give them credit for that. As far as unifying the country, I think we are in a divided country. There are some parts of the country that really are worried about World War Three. That, you know, if we dabble in even on the outskirts and somehow there's an attack that goes overhand overboard to Poland or another NATO ally that suddenly we're drawn into this big thing or even cyber attacks that go to some NATO ally that suddenly we're drawn into a cyber war with Russia. Um, I think there's a decent percentage of the population that's that. I think support for Ukraine has grown as people have uh, really looked at the situation on the ground. Uh, but I don't think there's a lot of hunger to do more with U.S. troops. No. At all. No, I, I think that that is clear, at least for now. I think that very low views, uh, dim views of Russia are across the board, Republicans, independents, Democrats. And I'm just going to be very interested to see tonight how the White House tries to take this moment of very rare unity in the country yeah. on this sentiment and – how they're going to try to use that, if at all, as they shift to other policy areas, because the speech will get partisan at some point. It always does. We'll be watching closely on Fox News Channel. Brett and Martha holding down the fort on FNC. I'll be joining special report tonight on the panel. Good to drop in, by the way. This was just fantastic. (laughs) It worked out great. Brett Baer on The Guy Benson Show, live in studio. Stay tuned. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. 
It's the Guy Benson Show. Live in D.C., we are just steps from the Capitol, where tonight in the House chamber, President Biden will deliver his first State of the Union address with a split screen, perhaps, with Ukraine under attack and increased Russian shelling. Things seem to be escalating in a dangerous and harrowing way over there. Joining us now is General Jack Keane, a retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining us. Oh, delighted to be here, Guy, with you and your audience. Thank you. Last time, last time we spoke, General, we were debating whether or not Putin would pull the trigger and would, in fact, authorize a wider invasion of Ukraine. Of course, that became very clear. That question was settled last Wednesday. We're now getting close to a week into this. What is your military assessment of what the Russian military has achieved so far and what they have not? Well, first of all, they they put together a a very complicated and ambitious plan to uh, invade Ukraine and force its collapse and and do that on four different axes. each axis requiring its own logistical support and air cover. Uh, as a result of it, the plan is so complicated, they haven't been able to maintain momentum on all four of these axes um, for two reasons. One, Ukrainian resistance, and, and certainly that has been very determined, courageous, and effective. Uh, and But the second one is, is their logistical lines haven't been able to to support them properly. Um, so what I think they've done here is they, guy, they, I think they had a thought probably at the highest level, either Putin or one of his top generals, uh, that we we need to collapse the country in a couple of days, 48 hours, 72 hours, uh, avoid um, as much civilian casualties as we can, force the collapse of it, avoid a lot of uh, international condemnation and pushback from the Russian people and not really coming to grips with who the Ukrainian people are, which they have been so familiar with, you know, for the last eight years. I mean, it's stunning to me that they didn't really get that the Ukrainian uh, military and its people would really fight them tooth and nail. I mean, these are the same people, Guy, that ran out the Russian puppet Yanukovych, who uh, who was in power, pro-Russian president in 2014. Hundreds of thousands of people demonstrated against him, and he fled to Russia. That That is what preceded annexing Crimea and entering eastern Ukraine, where they stayed for the last eight years. And during that time, there's been three anti-Russian governments, and all three of them have moved further to the West because that's what the people want in terms of prosperity, economic integration, and and security. And for the life of me, the Russians didn't appear to calculate that. I mean, Putin actually said that we intend to install a uh, pro-Russian government that is no longer committing genocide. That is the purpose of our invasion, because he doesn't call it an invasion, he calls it a special military operation. Very peacekeeping. Um, yeah, and then he said, um, and we have no intention to occupy the country. Well, that's almost laughable, because he has 40 million people that are going to resist uh, 
if and when he topples the government and the and the military, they're going to resist. It's going to be the most significant nightmare he's ever experienced so as president. Let me it, let me ask you about that. I mean, it absolutely is. Do you believe that the Russians still have enough superiority to overrun the country and take Kiev? They're having a hell of a time trying to do it. Uh, is there a realistic chance that they lose, or are they going to at least tactically for a while win, in your estimation? Well, when you analyze the combat forces, and they have now put on the on the Kiev axis uh, overwhelming combat power to be able to surround Kiev and certainly uh, take take control of it. If you look at just what they have there. Yes, they should be able to do that. Certainly, all of us would want them to fail miserably at that and the Ukrainians to succeed here and force a withdrawal from uh, from Ukraine by the Russian military. But that is unlikely. They have the combat power uh, to achieve to achieve that end. It may take longer than obviously they want it to be, but nonetheless, uh, it's there. Uh, and that and that's regrettable. But in the same time, though, Guy, the United States and others can still provide tangible assistance to the Ukrainian military to assist it with very significant capability in terms of Stinger missiles, anti-tank weapons, armed drones, and other capabilities that, that are much needed. Let me ask you, let's say just to play this out a little bit, the Russians are able to eventually take Kiev and topple the government. I mean, then what? I just don't understand what the end game would look like for Putin because he doesn't have the manpower to occupy a country that large, the size of Texas, with a population the size of California. The people hate him. They hate the Russians. They would have an insurgency forever and ever until they are no longer in that country, that insurgency would likely be equipped by the West while the West continues to cripple the Russian economy with all these sanctions. I'm just trying to figure out what is the way out of this for Putin, even if he technically, quote, wins. Yeah, I mean, that is that is the question that none of us, knowing Russian capability and the strategic issues here, you know, have been able to answer satisfactorily, other than the fact that this is one of the most significant miscalculations, uh, certainly that that has been made in our lifetime uh, by a by a nation state uh, who was used to using force and certainly has excellent intelligence services, um, both uh, civilian and military, and yet can so profoundly fail to grasp the implications of what taking charge of the country means to them. You're absolutely right. I mean, it, this the Ukrainians will fight them as long as there are Russians on their soil. And uh, I, I think it, it puts Putin really on a potential path uh, to some kind of removal from, uh, from Russia over time, not immediately, but over time as the sanctions take toll, and the by by whom? Like by by, by the oligarchs by and the military, own, some sort yeah, of yeah, by his coup? own people. I mean, you, you got to believe, guy, that right now, as we speak, there are senior foreign policy people and military leaders 
uh, military leaders certainly uh, humiliated and embarrassed by what has transpired here. But some of this has to do with this ambitious and complicated plan that was put together that the military either created themselves or Putin demanded, you know, in terms of uh, a, a very rapid toppling of the government. They, they, they're in a position that they resent to be in, for sure. And, and maybe this is something they created themselves. That means that there's people below them in the ranks that are looking at them and seeing them and saying to themselves, we got people that don't know what they're doing here. Well, and, and that, 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 is, that then that is the leads – what you've just said leads to my next question because you mentioned the capabilities of the Russian intelligence community, whether it's the GRU or the SVR, right? If they are a, a competent and quality intelligence service, you would imagine that they would have had at least some inkling of the challenges ahead, some of which that you've just laid out and, and really explained well here, General – if that were the case, is there some significant chance that Putin had that intelligence, knew the risk matrix, and decided to go with this anyway? And that brings me to a comment that Jennifer Griffin, our colleague, made here on this show yesterday. She said, quote, we're in a very, very dangerous situation right now. I don't think the world has ever been in a situation this dangerous. And if that is something that even you know rings true to some extent with you— that would, I guess, have to be because there is some growing sense or at least concern that Putin himself has on some level gone around the bend. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't have any information. I'm just listening to the anecdotal information of others. I do know that you know the Central Intelligence Agency, in conjunction with the other intelligence services, probably have a very recent profile of Mr. Putin. Uh, I've seen something like that a number of years ago uh, myself when I was on a defense policy board, and we were asking so many questions about him that, you know, they brought experts in and gave us a sense of who he was. Um, and so there's a, there's a grasp on that, and, and I, I think there some people who have had briefings are anecdotally leaking out that not everything is right, but they're not telling us anything that's specific uh, because they don't want to reveal classified information. But I think we can we can discern that there is some level of concern in our own government that the Putin we're dealing with now has not been the Putin that we're dealing with uh, before. But what I know uh, that, that I'm seeing from Putin, I see a lot of similarities. One, he's a thug and a killer and unbelievably brutal in the use of military force. Chechnya, 1999, 2000, killed over 8,000 uh, civilians in taking down Grozny, which he believed was a uh, an opposition uh, fu- uh, fundamentalist uh, stronghold opposing him. In, in Syria, on multiple occasions, uh, post-2015, in Aleppo, Idlib province, uh, the Russians did significant carpet bombing in whole neighborhoods and cities and taking down entire towns and villages, killing literally thousands and thousands of people and using deep penetration bombs to uh, blow up hospitals that were buried underneath the ground. I mean, it was clearly... Yeah, there's no compunction uh, at all on his part to killing civilians. None none whatsoever. uh, So that kind of brutality 
is there. I think they were trying to avoid that guy um, because they know this is not Syria and this is not Chechnya. This is something where the entire international community is watching. And for the life of me, guy, I'm familiar with our government's assessment of Russia's offensive warfare capability, which our government believes is significant. And while not as more eye-watering as ours, it is very comparable. And for the fact that the Internet is operating, the power is still on, the water is running, and the telecommunications system is supporting international broadcasting every single day is astounding to me because Zelensky and the Ukrainian people, God bless them, are able to get their story out. And this yes. is a regime that is very sensitive to information warfare and how you use it you know, to, uh, to influence public opinion. And, and they are a master at it. And they're given Zelensky the stage to do with what he wants. That is unbelievable. Yet I know they have a capability to do something about it. So something is happening there that we'll eventually find out in terms of uh, what went wrong. I've got a question that's been coming into me from friends and family members and listeners. There's a sense of frustration where people see these satellite images of this 40-plus-mile-long convoy of the military equipment and vehicles that is seemingly clearly intended to lay siege to and take the capital city of Kiev, but they're kind of stalled out and have been for a while, making very slow progress out of fuel, in some cases out of food, we're hearing from U.S. officials. They look from the sky or from space like a big column of sitting ducks. And people are asking me, why can't the Ukrainians just go and attack the convoy or bomb the convoy from from overhead uh, obviously we can't do that our I mean, we could if 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 we wanted to get into a full shooting war with russia i think we could you know make um, do a lot of damage based on the exposure of the russians right now on that road to kiev but that's sort of a moot point we're not getting involved that way can the russians or rather can the ukrainians do some damage to that convoy significant damage from the air People are asking, why hasn't it been done already? And I figured I'd put that question to you. Yeah, well, it's a great question. And the reason why it's largely been slowed is is because of what the Ukrainians are doing. We're just not seeing it uh, in real time. And some of it uh, may not be in, uh, you know, recorded for whatever the reason. There has been uh, some feedback on the direct hits that it's taking. So what do you, you – what happened is – Operational pause for two days uh, on the Axis Key is what I'm speaking to, the one that has the long convoy on it. Right. And they brought forward significant amount of reinforcements. Thousands, ten, actually tens of thousands of forces are on that are on that route uh, to overwhelm uh, Key for sure. But the Ukrainians hit it uh, with Turkish armed drones. They've been hitting it with anti-tank weapons, and they've been mining the roads. Um, so part of the slowdown is actually drew a due to the Ukrainians' direct action uh, that has taken place. But their appeal that they've been making is their, their munitions, particularly their, their heavy munitions that are making such a difference, like armed drones, stinger missiles, 
and anti-tank weapons are running short. So hopefully we're aggressive in getting and getting supplies into them. Yeah, so they can keep going and, and putting up that fight and hopefully turning the tide. But as you explained earlier, General, Russia has some real factors on their side, at least for now. But longer term, uh, this has already been a huge fiasco for Putin and for the Russians. And of course, we watch it every single day. And we really do value your insights from a military perspective. Jack Keane, retired four-star general here on The Guy Benson Show. General, thank you. Yeah, you're quite welcome. Always good talking to you and your audience, Guy. Thank you. We will step aside. We'll come right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Because as we all know, elections matter. And when folks vote, they order what they want. And in this case, they got what they asked for. I went off script a little bit. It's the Guy Benson Show. That's the vice president yesterday. If that clip isn't in every Republican ad in every state this fall, I don't know what the GOP is doing. Elections matter and people are getting what they asked for. Put that in an ad tomorrow. And speaking of the vice president, she was just asked today about Ukraine. You have to hear this answer for yourself in Cut 26. Break it down in layman's terms for people who don't understand what's going on and how can this directly affect the people of the United States? So Ukraine is a country in Europe. It exists next to another country called Russia. Russia is a bigger country. Russia is a powerful country. Russia decided to invade a smaller country called Ukraine. So basically that's wrong. He asked for layman's terms, not kindergartner terms. One heartbeat away. That's the vice president. (laughs) Another hour coming up on The Guy Benson Show. Josh Kay on politics. Straight ahead. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show a brand new hour on the guy benson show now underway coming to you from the tony snow studios in dc at fox's dc bureau here in our nation's capital and we are a stone's throw from the U.S. Capitol building, where President Biden tonight will address the nation and, of course, a joint session of Congress, his first, technically his first, State of the Union address. Fox News alert as we begin our second hour here on The Guy Benson Show. And a reminder that our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free. I'll be on special report tonight on the TV side, Fox News Channel in the 6 p.m. hour. The Dow closes down almost 600 points. In the red by 598 points at the closing bell, ending the day at 33,294. Another Fox News alert. Reports now coming in that a series of explosions have been felt and seen around Kiev, the capital city of Ukraine. We mentioned at the top of the show increased shelling and bombing of other Ukrainian cities earlier in the day. And it would appear, based on early reports, that the Russians are Again, bombarding Kiev to some extent. Uh, That's been going on and off now for days. 
Joining us now to discuss this dramatic backdrop politically for the president's speech tonight is Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal. He writes a column there against the grain. He's also a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, welcome back to the show. Good to have you. Good to be back, Guy. Well, I mean, you've got the president here, and on one hand, the numbers are absolutely dreadful for Joe Biden and his party. Now four polls in the last few days have pegged the president's overall job approval rating in the 30s, between 37 and 39 percent, substantial majority disapproving of his job approval, uh, of his job performance, rather. That is a very, very dire political situation for the president and the Democrats generally as they head toward November. On the other hand, there is this rare groundswell of unity in this country around what's happening to Ukraine by the Russians. I don't think that Biden is responsible for that unity. I wonder if there is some way that he can tap into it to perhaps continue down that path and try to at least improve his own standing somewhat. What are your thoughts as we head into tonight? Yeah, so, Guy, this was looking like a a speech where there just wasn't a whole lot of good news to give. Inflation rising, COVID weariness, crime, disorder on the rise across the country. Not, Not a whole lot of good news, not a whole lot of accomplishments in the first year. Now, Ironically, the chaos and the war that Russia declared on Ukraine is is giving President Biden an opportunity to reset his presidency and really to establish himself as a global leader committing to take on Putin along with our European allies. It it does give him a chance to really showcase strength and and, and form a a united front in, in taking on Vladimir Putin. Now, the problem is, the challenge is, number one, his approval ratings on Russia to date have been wanting. They've in the 30s in most of the, the latest polls out there nationally. And the other thing is that the, the, the I mean, they're basically so just far, just to jump in they're They're basically reflective of his overall job approval. Right. It's they track pretty closely. And then it's also reflective of the fact that you haven't seen the prime tra- the primetime addresses, the soaring rhetoric, the, the the ahead of the curve planning publicly at least, maybe privately it's a little bit different with with, with our diplomats, with Tony Blinken and our national security uh, advisors. But in terms of the president leading uh, rhetorically, getting out in front at, at the White House, we haven't seen that to date. This State of the Union guy will give the president another chance, as Europe has in the last forty eight hours, seventy two hours totally changed its posture vis-a-vis Russia, sanctions, uh, you know, uh, literally cutting cutting Russia off from, from the banking system. That was not where we just heard from Biden last week. Give it a month. Give us these initial sanctions a month, and we'll see where it goes. We're, far be, we're, we're moving far faster than that, and this is going to be an opportunity for the president to reset, offer a tougher message, and really take on Vladimir Putin. There were reports that Part of what Biden is going to try to do tonight is lay out what they're calling at the White House a unity agenda, which is fine. But I also heard the president yesterday commemorating Black History Month saying that Republicans are trying to stop black votes from counting. I'm not really sure you can run a unity agenda when you are not a unifying figure, even though you were elected to be a unifying figure. He has proven incapable of that thus far over the first year plus of his presidency. I don't know if some words – 
even on a big stage, are likely to change that. Yeah, that wasn't an encouraging sign, that rhetoric at the Black History Month event yesterday. Uh, We heard the president promise to work in a bipartisan fashion in his inaugural address, and then we saw what actually happened. He can. I mean, now now there's a time. You look at the the public opinion polls about how the United States should should react to dealing with Russia, and and you know there there is definitely a bipartisan mood towards taking tough measures, short of actually putting troops in in Europe, but but offering aid, offering military hardware to, to Ukraine, really really bolstering their defenses, at least at, the, at this very important time, uh, there there is bipartisan support. There's not a whole lot of distinction between the two parties. So President Biden, if he's talking about unity, he has an opportunity to achieve it for the moment, but he has to have his rhetoric match his, his promises. Speaker Pelosi was quoted earlier today, I guess she was on MSNBC, and she seems to be framing the current troubles of this administration as a communications problem and a lack of understanding by the voters. She said, for people to appreciate what the president has done, they have to know what it is, which kind of reminds me a little bit of her, we've got to pass the bill to find out what's in it. There, there's there's a, a bit of an echo there. But I just wonder, Josh, given how dreadful and sort of uh, bottom of the barrel some of the approval ratings are, even when you go down issue by issue, and where the people are hurting the most, Biden's approval is even lower. Is that a function? Is that a product of people not understanding or appreciating really how good Biden has secretly been? I mean, I feel like that's a really tough sell to the American people saying you're not really understanding what's in front of your faces every day. We have to explain it to you better. Voters, the marketplace of votes, Voters always know better than politicians. That, that, that's the beauty of politics, the beauty of public opinion. And as much as Democrats insist that the, the economy is great and, and cherry-picking stats about growth and jobs and you know how we've gotten past the worst of the pandemic from 2020, the reality is that overall the public is about as pessimistic towards the economy as I've seen in a long time. Number two, we all know that inflation is, 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 is growing at a faster rate than the rise in wages. It's, it's, it's a remarkable you know, the divide there. So people are not not getting as much for for their paycheck as they did a couple of years ago. Even if their wages have gone up, inflation has gone up even faster. Uh, so this is not about selling it, spinning things. It's about reality. It's about getting inflation under control. And and guys, even Democrats are now saying, and David Axelrod, I think, was the most prominent voice in the Democratic Party this past week, saying you can't just say everything is great. That is not where the public is. You can't sell them dog food if they if they if, they, if the dogs don't like it, and the dogs realize the reality of where, where this economy is. There may be some decent signs in terms of wage growth, but a lot of other things, namely the cost of goods, is just getting out of control. So, yeah, I mean, the wage the growth. Yeah, wage growth only helps if the buying power increases. And if your buying power is going down, even as your wages nominally go up, net-net, that's a wage decrease, right? And I mean, you can, there's spin to be had, but it doesn't really work when it runs into this sort of battle axe of reality. And and part of the thing, Josh, that's frustrating to me, although maybe I shouldn't be that frustrated, I should just be like, the Democrats should stick with this because I think it's so counterproductive for them. But you've seen some of the a sort of preemptive arguments that, well, what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, that's going to really hurt us in terms of the, the cost of fuel. It's going to exacerbate inflation. 
for them to blame inflation on the conflict in Europe, I mean, there's going to be some nuggets of truth to that, some kernel of truth to that. But the American people are smart enough to know that this was a very acute problem long before this invasion occurred. Right. And so I think trying to say like, oh, well, that's really out of our control and we have to collectively link arms and we're standing up to Putin. These are the sacrifices we're making. I think there's some appetite for that. But you can't fool people into believing that things were fine before that was the case. And and similarly, on a different subject, for Congress to all of a sudden be able to show up and sit next to each other and not wear masks the day before the big political speech, they say, oh, well, the CDC and the science changed. I just think that, again, is the type of argument that is insulting to people's intelligence and I mean, they can they can trot it out if they want to. It just I can't imagine it really sells beyond their hardcore base that wants to believe it. Well, two different things there. I mean, you're right. Absolutely. That that the gas prices were going up well before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It was a big issue before then. Now, what Democrats are planning to well, Republicans have, have rightly argued that let's let, let's expand our domestic energy uh, production. Let, 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 put, putting pressure on the environmental wing of the Democratic Party, the John Kerry wing of the Democratic Party, who are so into climate change, they, they're missing the forest for the trees in, in this crisis. So I think that is the argument Republicans are going to be making, have already made. Democrats are, are really focusing, and I think you might hear Biden talk about this in the State of the Union, about price gouging, and, and they're going to take on their, their favorite boogie, boogeyman, big businesses, yeah, ridiculous. And corporations. And uh, you know, well, I, I don't know if that's a winning issue, but that's what you'll likely hear from from the president tonight um, on the issue of covid you know it's striking we've talked about this a lot that basically almost every democrat is now in the glenn youngkin position of about a yes. month ago right yes and, and the, the other thing about the science versus the political science if you look at the new cdc standards on what's a green zone a safe zone and a red zone most of much of america would have been in the yellow or green zone before all i mean it would, it would have the, the the standards by taking masks off and saying you're fine would have been a lot of the country before Omicron and, 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 and even yes. perhaps some of Omicron. So, like, if that was the standard, when everything no, they just fine, moved the metrics. Right. The science have, didn't change. Masks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's so. The reality is, if you just take Omicron out of the picture, that one month of Omicron, we would have been, much of the country would have been in the green zone or the yellow zone well before Omicron. And yet, you still had masks in schools, you still had closures, you still had a lot of mitigation measures that weren't necessary and were politically problematic. New York Times story out today, how immigration politics drives some Hispanic voters to the GOP in Texas. I saw Dave Weigel at The Washington Post. He was just down in Texas at the border talking to a lot of Hispanic voters, Republicans and Democrats. He said, when people cross the border unlawfully, what do you refer to those people as? And he said, universally, everyone said illegals or illegal immigrants, which is sort of a a term that the Democrats have cut out of their collective vocabulary, but actual Hispanics on the ground in Texas use the term because it's accurate and descriptive. There's a disconnect there. It's not just other social issues in the economy. It's also immigration itself that has helped fuel some of this shift to the right among Latino voters across the country, particularly in South Texas. That is, I think, part of a broader trend, which has been very interesting to watch. I know that Republicans are pretty excited about it. And Texas might be ground zero 
for that phenomenon. It is Election Day in Texas, in the Lone Star State. I know we've got an affiliate in Dallas and uh, some other listeners, many listeners actually down in Texas. Uh, Some big primary races being decided today in Texas. Josh, what are you looking at down there this evening? Because I know there's a lot of other distractions happening. But if anyone is focusing on some of this political nerd stuff tonight, it'll be you. I say that with love. Thank you, Guy. On the immigration issue, there's no better primary to look at than the Democratic primary in the 28th district involving Henry Cuellar, who's a moderate Democrat, you know, reasonable on immigration and border security. On the, his district is on the border between Texaco and te- Texas and Mexico, and he is being investigated by the FBI, but he still has a, a good chance of winning his Democratic primary because the, the, the Democrat who he's running against is an AOC endorsed progressive and far left on the issue of border security and immigration. If Cuellar wins, despite being under FBI investigation, because he's actually sounding reasonable and moderate on immigration in a Democratic primary, keep in mind, it's a loud, loud signal guy that this is, uh, this is where, where, where many Hispanics stand, that, that the, a lot of the Latinx rhetoric, a lot of the open borders rhetoric is, is alienating to Hispanic voters, not to mention a whole lot of other voters. And if Cuellar does win despite the cloud hanging over his head, it would be a loud, loud signal about the, 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 the problematic direction progressives have taken the Democratic Party. Very quickly, Josh, 20 seconds. Is there a Republican primary race that you're most interested in keeping tabs on this evening in Texas? Yeah, absolutely. The the attorney general race between Ken Paxton, the Trump-endorsed attorney general. He's facing a few candidates, most prominently George P. Bush, uh, who uh, is, is uh, the land uh, land land secretary, one of the statewide officials. Uh, it's not a, a foregone conclusion that, that George P. Bush is going to get into the runoff. Uh, it's probably going to head to a runoff in that race. But this is a Trump versus Bush proxy war. Everyone's been running to the right. There's not a whole lot of difference on the issues. But if George P. Bush can't get into the runoff, um, it's a sign that perhaps the Bush era could, could be over in Republican politics. Josh Krausauer, politics editor at National Journal, Fox News Radio political analyst. Big evening ahead. Josh, appreciate it. Thanks for dropping by. Thanks, guys. Guy Benson show resumes after this short break. Don't go anywhere. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. Last night I was browsing through Twitter and Twitter informed me that a trending topic was Moscow Mitch, which is a very stupid nickname for Mitch McConnell, a moniker that has been coined by some of the dumbest people in our political discourse. And I guess the argument was that Mitch McConnell and the Republicans are in the pocket of Putin and Russia because Trump or whatever. And so they decided, I guess, to get that uh, hashtag going again or that nickname going again on Twitter. And it just struck me as particularly moronic these days. Setting aside Mitch McConnell's, what, 30-year Voting history as a very tough-on-Russia hawk. McConnell and his party just, what was it, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, they all voted. You remember this. We covered it here pretty heavily on the show. They all voted to sanction Putin's pipeline in Europe. And the Democrats filibustered it. The same week that the Democrats were saying the filibuster 
is a racist Jim Crow relic. They just briefly decided to use that Jim Crow relic one more time because they use it a lot when they're in the minority to filibuster the sanctions bill against Putin's pipeline, which McConnell, so-called Moscow Mitch, and the Republicans were all in favor of. It's like there's just not a lot of brain activity going on with some of these people. Meanwhile, if you look at the polling, the American people collectively are extremely pro-Ukraine and anti-Russia in this conflict. Views on Russia are negative, like 88 percent negative among Republicans and Democrats, according to Gallup. And the new poll out this week from Quinnipiac shows the people who are toughest, harshest on Russia and Putin are Republican voters. So that might scramble some narratives. Time to come up with a new dumb nickname, guys. Seriously. The Guy Benson Show continues next. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show, about halfway through today's edition of the program. Glad to have you along. Also glad to welcome back to the show... Mark Thiessen, columnist at The Washington Post, Fox News contributor, fellow at AEI. He was also chief speechwriter to President George W. Bush, which is the hat I'm going to ask him to wear for much of the interview here today. Mark, welcome back. Good to have you. Good to be with you. By the way, I have to note for our audience just a quick programming note. I was in the last segment talking about this uh, extremely stupid nickname that some on the left have given Mitch McConnell, calling him Moscow Mitch. It just it makes no sense. It doesn't align with his voting record or anything. Uh, But I I failed to mention, and I would be remiss if I did not note that we will have, I like to call him cocaine Mitch McConnell on the show Uh, tomorrow in our final hour. Mitch McConnell will be here in the 5 p.m. hour tomorrow to react to the State of the Union address, which is tonight up on Capitol Hill, Mark. All right. So Just walk us through the process of crafting a State of the Union address. When does it start? What does that look like? And just talk about sort of the drafting and the editing and uh, the delivery, all of it. Yeah, so, I mean, I I had the privilege of being the lead writer on two of them and and participated in writing four of them. Um, So it is both the most watched speech an American president gives and also the hardest to write because it is by its nature a laundry list of policy initiatives. Every office in government is lobbying to get their policy mentioned. And so to turn it into a thematic speech and something that captures people's attention is an incredibly hard challenge. It starts really uh you know around thanksgiving we probably we would start doing an outline of course we get we uh, president bush i think delivered them sooner earlier than march uh for the most part i think this is the data slipped in recent years uh but we'd worse we'd started outline uh, after thanksgiving uh and then really come early january when we come back from the christmas holiday street traders never get a holiday because you got to have the thing you got to have right after thanksgiving you got to have the outline right after christmas you got to have the draft right <laughs> and and so we would uh we would, we'd have a first draft in early january you'd start out sitting uh, sitting with the president in the oval office and getting his edits it also goes through a staffing process at the white house where every office gets to comment on it and that's where the street traders get all the incoming uh from every office lobbying them to get their their policies mentioned and then as the president gets more and more comfortable with it, uh, he sets up practice sessions in the family theater in the residence, uh, which is a movie theater that uh, that can also be turned into a speech practice area. And they put up a podium. And, and uh, first, he'd start out with paper, paper speech and start reading it aloud and making edits as he went. 
Uh, eventually, those those would change from editing sessions to practice sessions with minor tweaks here and there. And he'd put up the teleprompter and, and practice it and do it over and over and over again for, for days leading up to the speech. So by the time he got in front of the uh, podium, uh, he had pretty much internalized it, so he's not really reading. He is, you know, he's looking at the text to be reminded of the lines. But but it's all. But he's he's said this speech so many times uh, that he uh, that he knows it almost by heart. In fact, I think Bill Clinton once uh, they actually loaded the wrong speech in the teleprompter, and it took about ten minutes for them to change it up and get it right to get it back to the State of the Union. He just spoke extemporaneously for ten minutes, and no one even noticed. Um, wow, so that's an impressive feat of of presidential speech delivery. Yeah, I mean, no question. I mean, whatever you think of Bill Clinton, the guy had some talent and some chops on some of this stuff, and he was president he twice, right? And so, Mark, we learned earlier on the broadcast. <laughs> oh, you 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 prefer Clinton to Biden? To the, I didn't know how good we had it as Clinton here, with how radical uh, the Democratic Party has gotten. Oh, if you mean so like Bill Clinton and policies, right? That's an important. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I, caveat: I, I, a guy who like passed welfare reform with the Republicans. I mean, you know, they couldn't even imagine doing something like that today. Right. The era of big government is over. The era of big government is over. I mean, no, no less true words have ever been spoken in American history. But I love. Them. Yeah, alas. All right, we we've got to break out and shake off this nostalgia for Bill Clinton. I've had enough of it here. Mark. All right, fine. And let's let's move. <laughs> let's charge forward. We learned on the broadcast in the first hour we had a surprise guest on the show. He was just walking down the hallway here at the bureau and poked his head in and said, "Hey, do you have time?" We said, "Yes, sir, Brett Bayer." And he had just come back from the White House where he met with uh, nine other news anchors, or I guess eight other news anchors, nine total plus the president. And they had this off the record, I guess, customary conversation, sort of sketching out the president's vision, what he hopes to accomplish, et cetera. And one of the things that Biden said that Brett was able to share with us is, and this is not necessarily surprising, the speech has been rewritten to lead with Russia and Ukraine. If you were trying to help President Biden, uh, as the commander in chief, as the leader of the free world, and also trying to restore some of the ground that he's lost. I mean, he's he's lost a lot of ground politically. What would you advise if you were drafting, you know, this this speech tonight? What would you advise the correct tone and approach would be on this subject? One, one of the problems Joe Biden has going into the State of the Union address is that most Americans, I mean, he's underwater on every issue, including Ukraine. Um, and most Americans uh, think that he hasn't kept his campaign promise to unite the country, that he's done more to divide us than he has to unite us. They also, there's there's a poll uh, that shows morning political morning calls on polls, 50% say Biden is responsible for Russia's invasion. Economist YouGov poll, 56% say he's a weak leader. 56% of respondents in an NPR poll said that his first year was a failure, 36% calling it a major failure. Um, so the, he's going into this, to this speech weakened by his failure to do what he promised when he came into the, into the office, which is to put his whole soul into uniting the country. He got duped in by the progressives into thinking because he the worst thing ever happened to him was getting a 50-50 Senate and being having delusions of grandeur that he could be a new FDR. Americans didn't vote for him to do that. They voted him for to unite the country, to stop the rancor, and bring Republicans and Democrats together. So that's a long lead into saying – Ukraine is a great opportunity to do that because um, Republicans and Democrats are cheering for, for President Zelensky. 
Republicans and Democrats alike are are pulling for the Ukrainian people. Republicans and Democrats alike have been just amazed by the stories and the videos we're seeing coming out of Ukraine. Of these, you know, the, we saw the video the other day of a Ukraine a Ukrainian farmer dragging a, a Russian tank away with his tractor while the Russian soldier was was running after him. They actually stole a tank. I mean, these Ukrainians are just unbelievable. The whole country has been mesmerized by their courage, and we want to help them perfect opportunity for the president of the United States to step up and rally the country behind Ukraine. And to do that, he's got to he's got to project a message of strength. He's got to lay out some specific things that we're going to do uh, that to to help the Ukrainians. He's got to. And the one the one words that we have the set of words we have not heard him say yet in any of his addresses to the nation and any of his press conferences, this aggression will not stand. Those are words he has not spoken. He needs to say that whether Kiev stands or Kiev falls, America will stand with the people of Ukraine until they have had, they've gotten their freedom and, and sovereignty back from Russia. Um, and it's not about punishing Russia. It's about stopping this war on a, demo- a fellow democracy, and we're going to stand with the Ukrainian people. Um, I would love to see him lead. Uh, two things I would have done if I was planning this is, number one, I would have him uh, – put President Zelensky in the box by video. <laughs> Have President Zelensky beam in from Ukraine into the State of the Union address. He might. If President- I mean, that's seems like that's, that's possible, possible, right? It would be great. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking what I would do if I was advising him. If they did that, that would be a, a world historic moment in history of State of the Union addresses. The other thing would be to lead the members of Congress in saying, Slava Ukraine. If, do you imagine what it would what a boost it would be to the Ukrainian people if they heard the entire United States Congress, Republicans and Democrats saying together, saying glory to Ukraine and we stand with you. Um, so those are two. Those are some things I would do. And also I'd put sanctions on their oil and, and gas, which he hasn't done. Hasn't done yet. Yeah. In the meantime, since you mentioned unity, this is something we discussed earlier with Josh Krasauer. The White House is telegraphing that Biden is going to lay out what they're calling a unity agenda. But just yesterday, At an event at the White House, Biden said that Republicans are trying to stop black people's votes from counting in elections. I think it's hard for that person using that type of language, which is not new for him, unfortunately, to try to take up the mantle of unity because that well is poisoned and poisoned over and over again by him. Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate because it's and it's it's quite deep down. On all of these issues, it's literally the the, the common foundation that his that his collapse. I mean, it, just to understand how deeply this guy has fallen in the polls, he started out as president with 56 percent approval and 20 points above water on approval, and he is now down into the 30s in in, in, in approval rating. No president. I mean, he, his approval rating is not only is it lower than Trump's uh, at the worst points in his presidency. It fell further because Trump never never got to 56 percent. It's the fastest, deepest, most profound collapse of presidential support in the modern history of our nation. I can't rec- I can't think of another president in, in the modern era who is who is so has taken so much goodwill and absolutely wasted it. So he's in a hole of his own making. Uh, that said, it's never too late to be strong when it comes to Ukraine for the president of the United States to project strength. And it's never too late to try and unite the country. Um, and so, you know, the key, the, for, if he obviously has, you know, his muscles have been, his reflexes are to do this partisanship because that's what he's been doing for a year. But if he doesn't lay out a, 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 a bipartisan agenda tonight, guess what? 
you know, the in a few months he's going to have to do yeah, whether be forced he wants upon to or not. Him. Because yeah, this, by this, voters. come November, there's going to be no more Democrat-only reconciliation bills. It's over. He won't pass anything unless it has Republican support. So why not do it now and make it seem like a choice? <laughs> then do it. Then try to do it later when he's completely lost any 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 goodwill because Republicans right. know he's only doing it because he has no choice. And where the choice has been imposed by the American people. Lastly, Mark Thiessen, I want to play you two sound bites from the vice president. As we've established, you're a speechwriter. She went off script yesterday and said this. Cut twenty three. Because as we all know, elections matter. And when folks vote, they order what they want. And in this case, they got what they asked for. (laughs) I went off script a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, she did. Um, Elections matter and the people voted and they got what they asked for. I feel like that needs to be in every Republican ad from now until November. In every Republican ad, and it reminds me of uh, the great New York mayor, Ed Koch. He was mayor of New York when I was growing up. Uh, I'm older than you, Guy. And uh, and Ed Koch, after he lost to David Dinkins, they said, Mr. Mayor, are you ever going to run for office again? And he said, no, the people have spoken and they must be punished. <laughs> that is exactly how I feel about the, about the last election. <laughs> the people have spoken to the most people. But here's the thing that she doesn't understand, Guy. They didn't. They gave her. They gave them a 50-50 Senate and a razor thin majority in the House. They didn't vote for this. They didn't vote for radicalism. That is a, that isn't a mandate for socialism. That's a mandate for compromise. Literally, they've said, "I'm putting, giving you 50-50 Senate. Work to get work it out." And they just went and said, "No, but we're going to just do everything with Democrat only votes." That, that that's a they've completely failed to seize the mandate uh, of what the American people ordered when they went to the voting pool, uh, when they went to the voting booth. Mark, have you heard the other clip of Kamala Harris, the vice president, asked about oh, Ukraine? No. Have you heard this? You haven't heard this? No. no. Oh boy. Okay. So she was asked about Ukraine on a podcast, asked to sort of break it down. He said, "Put it in layman's terms." As I said earlier, he asked for layman's terms, not preschool terms. Uh, cut twenty six. Break it down in layman's terms for people who don't understand what's going on and how can this directly affect the people of the United States. So Ukraine is a country in Europe. It exists next to another country called Russia. Russia is a bigger country. Russia is a powerful country. Russia decided to invade a smaller country called Ukraine. So basically that's wrong. Mark? Um can't disagree with anything she said there. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is but, a country in Europe. But, you know, Fact check there, true. But for the grace of God goes our next president. That's all I can say. I mean, anyone yeah. who, as bad as Joe Biden is, can you imagine if something happened to him and Kamala Harris was commander in chief right now? Ooh, oh, God forbid. I mean, God help us. Yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Thiessen, we'll leave it there. Columns of the Washington Post, Fox News contributor, and for the purposes of today's interview, we're highlighting that he was chief speechwriter to President George W. Bush. He was the lead author on two of those State of the Union addresses. Biden will give his first tonight around 9 p.m. Eastern. We'll be watching on Fox News Channel. Mark, good times. Thanks for joining us. Take care, guys. Thanks for sharing all, right, all that. We'll be you. right back. You bet. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's The Guy Benson Show. We're back. So the Senate was in recess last week, and they finally came back 
And their first order of business was to vote on an abortion bill. And this is not just any abortion bill. It is a radical abortion bill. I understand that this is a tough issue. It's a complex issue. There are shades of gray. There are smart people who disagree. I am pro-life. I understand there's a lot of people who are pro-choice. We have those discussions. This crosses into pro-abortion, which is what they decide to vote on as a priority in the Senate. In the middle of the war and everything else, this is what they came back from their recess to try to tackle Chuck Schumer and company. This bill would be a national law imposed on the entire country, nullifying any and all state laws that prohibit or regulate abortion, including late-term abortion of babies who are viable outside of the womb that late in pregnancy. It would prohibit, according to National Review, even the most modest regulations like informed consent laws, waiting periods, ultrasound requirements, even safety standards for abortion clinics. There are sort of religious exemption, conscious protections that would be gutted under this bill. It even allows late-term abortions to be performed by non-doctors. It is as radical as it gets. On-demand, taxpayer-funded abortion all the way through the nine months of pregnancy. This is a position that roughly 15% of the American people support. It is way out there on the fringe. It is not pro-choice. It goes way beyond that. It is radical by definition. When you just look at where the American people are, it's way out there. It's quite gruesome and grotesque. Every single Senate Democrat, except for Joe Manchin, that voted last night, voted yes. In fact, the same bill passed the House late last year. There was only one dissenting Democrat in the House. So you had 266 Democrats in Congress, Senate and House members, 266 of them who voted on this bill, 264 of them voted yes. 99% of Democrats in Congress supported this absolutely disgusting, extreme measure on abortion. Only two, one in each house, Henry Cuellar of Texas, Congressman, and Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia voted no. And by the way, every single vulnerable Democrat in swing states, including people who portray themselves as moderates, swing districts, people running for Senate, people running for reelection in the Senate, they all voted yes because they are beholden to a very extreme abortion lobby. This is way, way out of the mainstream. And this was the first thing that they did coming back from recess in the middle of this war in Ukraine. I mean, you probably didn't even hear about this because the press is very left wing on abortion. So they provide cover and sort of ignore the ugliness of what Democrats try to do. It was defeated is the good news. A majority was against it, but just barely in the Senate. Elections really do matter. Keep that in mind in November. Final hour coming up. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
Final hour on this Tuesday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free on demand every day when the program is over, which ends at 6 p.m. Eastern. The show airs for the previous three hours. And if you want to download or subscribe to the podcast totally free of charge, we encourage you to do that. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage is here in America. It's expanding. It is delicious. I'm a huge fan. Many of you have tried it. You reach out to me and let me know. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where it's sold near you, expanding rapidly, four new states just in the last few weeks. TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only, always drink responsibly. As we begin our final hour today, we welcome back to the show U.S. Senator Ben Sass, Republican of Nebraska. He serves on the Intelligence, Judiciary, Finance, and Budget Committees in the upper chamber. And, Senator, it's good to have you back. Guy, yeah, thanks for having me. What is the very latest you can bring to us in terms of what is happening on the ground in Ukraine? You're getting briefed on a regular basis. I know that the Ukrainians are saying there's uh, yet more brutal bombing of Kiev and other cities by the Russians, even you know, right now. Uh, what can you tell us? You know, we're a week into this thing, and nobody, Ukrainians, would be able to do what they've done so far. Um, but every day, and as you as you get into night, you know, I guess it's 2 a.m. now in Kiev. Um, as you get into night, Putin, frustrated by the fact that the Ukrainians just didn't, you know, collapse and submit to his will, um, is more and more willing to shell civilian targets and and you know just try to demoralize the population and the. Great news. The surprising heroic news is that so far it's not working. But obviously the Ukrainians are outgunned and outmanned. But they're uh, they've got a hell of a lot more courage and will than the Russian invaders because most of these boys didn't know where they were being deployed to. Their parents thought they were still on a training mission. Putin is evil, uh, and there is no no limit to what he'll do. And so each night we see him more and more willing to shell civilian populations. But their spirit isn't broken. We've heard from your colleague Marco Rubio and also a similar assessment from Condoleezza Rice, the former secretary of state, yesterday on Fox News Sunday. They were suggesting that and kind of darkly hinting that there's intelligence that Putin has kind of lost it. He's not the same guy he was five years ago. He was always brutal, always a thug, no uh, no interest in preserving innocent human life whatsoever. That's all bad enough, but there's at least a suggestion that he's getting worse, more unhinged, more unglued, more erratic. Uh, to the extent that you can comment on that, what's your response? Yeah, so I, I try hard not to get anywhere near um, the intelligence, but I'll just say top-line issue on Putin is um, that the guy is evil. Um, he doesn't understand the heroism of the boys of Snake Island because he doesn't get anybody who'd be, who'd be about anything other than just brute force. But Putin has a lot of will, and he has a lot of weapons, and he's paranoid. Uh, I don't mean that in a clinical sense, but he obviously recognizes that there aren't a lot of people who willingly sign up and follow him as if he has some great inspirational vision. Um, he only knows the fist and his boot on somebody else's neck. And so a lot of the people that have relationships close to him see them as transactional relationships. 
to get money as they together, you know, rape and pillage uh, the Russian people. But they're also scared of him. So he doesn't get a lot of good counsel in a normal situation because he ends up surrounding himself with soulless yes men. But it's worse in a COVID environment because you've seen the pictures of him. Um, Obviously, he's COVID crazy. And so he's 40 feet away from people. Contrast it with Zelensky, who's in there arm in arm with his men, you know, standing willing to, to risk his own death and saying to offers of evacuation. Uh, I need ammo, not a ride. And then he smiles and laughs and hugs his guys and breaks bread with them. Uh, Putin doesn't have friends like that. He only has transactional partnerships. And in the COVID time, his network shrunk radically. So he doesn't get good advice. I'm I'm not going to psychoanalyze him here, but he's obviously um, getting less good counsel now than he did a couple years ago. Here in America, the public opinion polls speak for themselves, just overwhelming opposition to Putin and Russia, strong, strong support for the Ukrainians. It's bipartisan across the board. People are wondering, what can we do? What should we do, America? So we ought to tell the Ukrainian stories. We ought to um, try to rally all the the people around the world who say they believe in freedom. It was embarrassing what the Indians did, uh, where they were unwilling to take a stand in something that's so black and white uh, that Zelensky, as a symbolic hero, he's an actual hero, but he's also a symbol of all of his people, has moved the Germans in a week. He's moved the Swiss in a week. He's moved the Swedes in a week. He's moved Finland in a week. Um, We need to rally those people. But then we also need to, at the realist level, be arming them to the teeth. Stingers and javelins and RPGs and and ammo um, and actionable, lethal, real-time targeting intelligence. This administration is way too slow. When Nebraskans are calling me about this issue the last 24 hours, they say, hey, I've seen on cable TV the images of a 40-mile convoy. How is it that the Russian invaders can just sit there and not be destroyed? Well, we know the Ukrainians are willing to fight. We know um, that the Russians didn't achieve the air superiority immediately that they thought they were going to achieve. And so we need to be getting the Ukrainians more ammo and more real-time lethal targeting uh, intelligence. And right now this administration is not doing that nearly fast enough. Yeah, they're doing some of it for sure. And we saw another authorization on Friday, $350 million worth of lethal aid, including javelins. That's all good. The intelligence sharing is good, but sounds like it could be better and faster. Let's pause on this subject for a moment, Senator, and move from your role on the Intelligence Committee to your role on the Judiciary Committee, another big story in the country that we've barely discussed this week because it's just been obviously this massive story all-consuming in Ukraine. But there's a Supreme Court nominee that will be coming before your committee and then the the broader Senate in all likelihood uh, in the coming weeks. Your thoughts on Judge Brown Jackson as a nominee from President Biden to replace Justice Breyer? You know, I am looking forward to sitting down in person with Judge Jackson. I believe it's on my schedule later this week. I will be honest, I've been in and out of the the skiff. So, uh, you know, 
constantly for the last few days uh, that I haven't read any of the opinions uh, that I think she's published maybe three opinions in her time on the circuit court. And so I look forward to reading those. I look forward to having the the kind of conversation with her that I had with Amy Barrett uh, and with with Neil Gorsuch and and with Brett Kavanaugh, which is fundamentally I'm a non-lawyer. I'm a guy who's taken an oath to the Constitution and the three branches of government that the founders gave to us check and balance one another and the Article three judges and especially the Supremes and the the circuit court judges um, have have an unbelievable responsibility, but it's a cloaked responsibility. They wear a black robe for a reason. They're not super legislators, and that's why they get lifetime appointments as opposed to having to stand before the people to hire and fire them again. So I'm going to want to hear Judge Jackson explain to me um, what her understanding is of the the distinction among those three branches and and how judges differ from legislators and looking forward. She's obviously an impressive woman and looking forward to to meeting her and, and getting to hear her her argument for uh, for a constitution that is uh, about limited government. Senator Sass, in the last hour, I reviewed a vote that occurred in the Senate last night. You all were on recess. You came back from recess, and the first order of business was not Ukraine or apparently anything else. It was a bill that I can only describe as radical on abortion. It failed narrowly. Um, just in terms of the priorities of Senator Schumer and then the legislation that was proposed on substance, this is something that only two Democrats in all of Congress have been willing to stand up and raise their hand saying, no, this goes too far. Your reaction to what played out last night? You know, I think I'm going to just start walking around with an index card in my pocket that just has April 7th written on it. And every time somebody in the Capitol Hill press corps asked me why we're doing whatever stupid thing leader Schumer puts up that day. We'll just show him the date of the New York primary, because that's what's really going on. You have a guy who's, who's scared to death of AOC. So AOC sets the agenda in the Senate and leader Schumer does whatever nonsense, crazy stuff uh, as a grandstanding stunt that is necessary to try to convince AOC to not primary him. So that, that's what that vote was about. But at the substantive level, um, it's just it, it's really sad. I'm obviously, you know, one of the handful of half a dozen most conservative voters in the Senate. So I'm I'm not a moderate on these issues. Um, but I think America would be healthier if the Democratic Party actually tried to speak to something more than the, the craziest uh, online enraged folks on on Twitter. Um, and so, you know, the old days of Democratic politics claimed they were for safe, legal and rare. This is anything but this. The shout your abortion party is radically out of touch with where Americans are. And obviously, this bill wasn't something they thought was going to pass. It was something that Leader Schumer wanted for his uh, his primary defenses. Yeah, but they all voted for it, except for Manchin. I mean, that's the thing. Like, it is crazy, and it's all the things that you described. And when I was actually going through some of the provisions last hour, it almost sounds like I wouldn't blame someone for saying, is he is he out of his mind? Is he maybe embellishing this, you know, for for political reasons? No, it's as bad as it sounds. And you can just read the bill for your, it's, uh, for yourself. If, if you doubt me, you can just go through and read the text of the bill. I guess my concern is not so much that they held a vote on it for political reasons and base servicing and in certain, you know, uh, special interests within the party with a lot of money. You know, th- that is what it is. You had... Ninety nine percent of congressional Democrats support this. And it's and it's way out there that that worries me. It does. 
It, me too, because the, the reality is 86% of Americans don't want to pay any attention to politics. They're only about 14% paying attention. And so what happens is more and more actions of public officials are directed at that echo chamber. And I want to be clear, at the, I'm going to say something political here, but first, just at the level of substance, um, I'm I'm zealously pro-life uh, because one of the only major uh, core purposes of government is to defend the, the poorest and weakest and most vulnerable among us. And so we should be protecting these babies. But just at an analytic matter from where the electorate is, the electorate is about thirds uh, on abortion. And mm-hmm. the, the middle third is not where I am. It's, it's left of where I am. But the middle third basically wants abortion left alone uh, in the first trimester, and they don't understand why there'd be all this discussion of abortion after that trimester. Right. Again, yeah, and yet that's not where the Democrats are on this issue at all. And I guess they figured they'll get cover from the press, which largely agrees with them on this issue. That could be part of it. But uh, a pretty gross spectacle in the Senate last night. Senator Ben Sass, Republican Nebraska. Appreciate it, sir. We'll be right back. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Yesterday we were talking about some people engaged in vodka diplomacy or vodka solidarity. And, of course, we had to go straight to our resident vodka expert, producer Christine, on that. Now I want to ask her about another phenomenon that's strange that has emerged from all of this. And you have to at least appreciate some lighter stories involving a very heavy subject matter. And I'm talking in this case about... Well, quite frankly, the thirst among quite a few women out there in the West for the president of Ukraine, President Zelensky. I guess this is a thing where women online are talking about how handsome he is and how they're sort of falling in love with him because of his bravery and his leadership. And we had to bring Christine into this conversation as well, because I would not be surprised if she were on this bandwagon because she was on the Andrew Cuomo badwagon, you might recall, in those early days of the pandemic. And he was giving those press conferences and I guess getting coached by CNN executives in advance of those press conferences. And he was trying to take shots at President Trump and he was avoiding questions or revelations about his failed policies like forcing a bunch of senior citizens back into nursing homes, even though they were infected with covid, creating death traps. We found out about a lot of that subsequently, but in the moment, there was this phenomenon, especially among journalists and women of a certain persuasion who were all about Andrew Cuomo, people calling themselves Cuomo-sexuals. Remember that? That was pretty gross, especially in retrospect, given what we know. But Christina would refer to him as my Andy. And let's just say the love is gone and has been for quite some time. Has that impulse, has that desire to project these feelings onto some sort of leader in the public eye translated over to Zelensky for producer Christine, as it has reportedly for a lot of women? I I think it's a bit much. The man is fighting for the survival of his country. And he himself may not survive. I mean, the Russians have almost certainly marked him for death. But I guess that's part of the appeal for some, the the danger of it all. Christine, 
Are you a fangirl? Are you in the in the club? I I'm in the club. I mean, it's a no brainer. This man is a hero. He's a fighter. He, you know, well, he will literally lay down his life for his country and his family. And I don't have the thirst, let's say, that I did with Andy. And I don't, I don't know why I even have to bring that up. Thanks. I think it's important context about your judgment and your taste. And I think that's unfair to Zelensky because Zelensky's at least a lot more worthy, I think, of admiration. I'll put it that way. But let me ask you this. Is the fact that he was a comedian, so obviously he's got a sense of humor. He won their Dancing with the Stars, so he's got some moves. Do those factor into this, or is it just the leadership, the gritty wartime thing, the genuine courage? Is that mostly what's driving this bus for you? I I would say that's most of it, but I do like the whole package. You know, he has it all, and that is appealing to many. But we can talk about this further when he wins the war. Then, then Cookie really can go to town. Yeah, then, then if he, let's say, God willing, he survives, Ukraine wins, and he comes over to the United States on some sort of goodwill tour, for you it would be like the Beatles coming, right? You're just screaming, throwing garments at him. He can only be so lucky. Well, <laughs> Let's just remember he is married and his and his wife, she is a hero as well. Yeah, you know, she's she, and she's been amazing. The kids are adorable. Have you seen the photos of his kids? I have. I These have. family photos are just heartwarming. And then you smile. You smile just looking at this family and then your heart sinks because you remember what's happening and the danger that they're in and why they're in that danger. And then it becomes not just sad and sobering, but also to me, angering. So I guess we had a little fun there for about three or four minutes there. But now we have to get back to the serious because that is the order of the day. And when we come back, we will have a serious guest joining us. Martha McCallum, co-anchor for Fox News Politics, hosted the story. She will join us here in studio in Washington, D.C. when we return to The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. And we're back. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Very happy to have you all along during this happy hour. It's appropriate. Sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every single day. Joining me right here in studio in D.C., our Tony Snow Studios at our D.C. Bureau, is Martha McCallum, our friend and colleague, executive editor and anchor of The Story, every day at 3 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. She's also the co-anchor for Fox News Politics. She will play a leading role tonight in our State of the Union coverage. You can read her best-selling book, Unknown Valor. You can check out her podcast, The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. And Martha, welcome to Washington. Great to see you. Hi, guys. Great to be here. Great to be with you in the Tony Snow studio. It's really nice. This bureau, had you seen the bureau? I have, yeah. It's, it's, uh, we, we were here kind of back and forth throughout um, during COVID, but it, it is spectacular. It's wonderful to be back, and it's great when we all get to see each other. 100%, and they did a great job with it. And tonight is a very big night. It has that feeling in the air, not just because there's a State of the Union address, which is sort of this you know, annual tradition. There's some pomp and circumstance. There's a debate about whether it really is the same big deal that it used to be. But when you couple it with war 
and war coverage, there is that sense, I would say, that it's a meaningful night. I'm wondering in your anchoring capacity what you're sort of looking for from the president and just the atmospherics in general this evening. Well, it's a big moment, obviously, for President Biden. It's his first State of the Union address. He has been the person who sat behind for a very long time and in many uh, State of the Union addresses. And this is a speech, no doubt, that has been ripped up and rewritten about 50 times in the past several weeks because the world has completely changed. There are moments in life and moments in history and coverage where you recognize that nothing really will ever be the same after this. And this is one of those historical shifts that we're witnessing right now. And in my mind, there's really only two things to talk about tonight. One is Ukraine and Russia, and the other is the U.S. economy. Anything that falls below that bar, I think, is going to not really resonate with people. And the president has an opportunity this evening to show leadership. His numbers are, you know, very far south of 50, really across the board, especially when it comes to issues like leadership. Do you think President Biden's a strong leader. 61% say no. Is he honest and trustworthy? 55% say no. Mental soundness, 53% say no. The president has a lot to lay down tonight in terms of restoring the American people's confidence in him and his ability to lead in these really, really consequential times. Do you think that this is still an event, the State of the Union, that can move the needle in a lasting way? Because I'm trying to think back and rack my brain for a moment in the last 20 years where it really has achieved that. Maybe post 9-11, that era a little bit, lead up to war in Iraq. But generally, yes, it's a lot of eyeballs, although the numbers have been coming down, and everyone takes it wall-to-wall and cable news and the broadcast networks. Even if he gives the speech of his life tonight, which, I don't know, I'm Count me as skeptical. But if he can do that and it's pitch perfect in every way, does it shift his political fortunes and, and the, the mood of the country? You know, I, I almost think that it only shifts that needle if he really lays down the marker in a very strong way to Vladimir Putin about democracy, about what will be defended, right? If he makes a very forceful statement, and we haven't really seen this from President Biden, um, but if he does, it could be a marker for him. Obviously, we live in a world now where people don't wait all of these months to hear the State of the Union address. We watch him every day. We listen to all of the back and forth, and people have so much access to information now. And I do know that you know people are so engaged in what's going on in Ukraine right now. And if there is something that could provoke them to want to hear what he has to say, this could be it. Um, President Zelensky spoke with him a short time ago. They spoke for about 30 minutes, and he asked this president to be strong and to be supportive. Um, This is a moment when you could look Vladimir Putin in the eye and tell him that this will not stand, that he will be going back where he came from, that Ukraine will be free. Let's talk about one of the previews that we've gotten of the State of the Union address. They are going to at least on some level double or triple down on the green energy stuff. Now, that doesn't quite sound like it would reach the bar that you were just talking about, the two big things that would resonate with the American people. In some ways, it would do Almost the opposite, because part of the reason that we're in this mess right now in Europe is because of the power of fossil fuels and the way it can be used coercively. Oil can be used coercively to bend entire countries and governments to the will of bad people. Right. So there's that. And then 
There's the U.S. economy component and the cost of everything going up. And if they're going to try to say, oh, no, really, for real, let's move to a new green economy and it'll bring prices down. They can try that, Martha. But I mean, even as someone, if I if I can set aside my own ideology, that doesn't seem to to borrow a popular phrase right now, meet the moment, so to speak, in any way. Well, you know what? We've seen many times that President Biden does not necessarily meet the moment, doesn't find people where they are right now. And that's why I'm saying that if I were advising him on tonight, I would say there are only two things. There's Ukraine and there's the economy. The economy obviously is a very broad subject and it has to do with exactly what you're talking about. This is a president who could say that he is, because we're in an emergency environment, changing his perspective on drilling in the United States, on increasing our capabilities here in the United States as a national security imperative, right? This, I mean, I, I think people up and down the chain understand that this is what needs to happen right now. Joe Manchin was just all riled up about the mm-hmm. fact that we still are getting 500,000 barrels of oil from from Russia and banning it. I mean, th- there's a moment to say... And it's almost a gimme to the president. You know, he can look progressives in the eye tonight and then Rashida Tlaib can come in and, you know, scratch the side of the car with the with a key, right. as Josh Gottheimer says, um, and she can say whatever she wants. But, you know, he's been around a long time. He's finally president of the United States. He has the right to say whatever he truly believes and pick a lane and stand strongly in it. Now, I, I think I said similar things to this when he did his big press conference a couple of weeks back. We We didn't see any of that. Um, So, you know, I I just constantly wonder at some point, does he look at that and say it's not working? It doesn't meet the moment. It doesn't respond to what's happening in Ukraine and Russia. Russia has to be isolated in every single possible capacity. The American people, just like they did in World War II, are willing to make sacrifices and willing to say this isn't the moment to stop with federal leases on federal land for natural gas. And and. Jen Psaki was on America's Newsroom this morning and was sort of saying, oh, well, the Keystone Pipeline, it's sort of this red herring because it wouldn't help right now. It's like, well, it could help right now if it had been approved years ago under Obama or if it hadn't been canceled at the beginning of the presidency from Biden. It's sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy if you keep not allowing it and then there's an emergency or there's pain for the American people. And you say, well, things could be different. It's like, well, that's not going to change anything overnight. It's not going to change Russia's calculation tomorrow. No, it, it's a longer. But this is how important the Keystone Pipeline is. It was the first thing that Barack Obama did on day one. He cut off the Keystone Pipeline. Same, same thing with President Trump. Open the Keystone Pipeline on day one. President Biden shut down the extension for the Keystone XL pipeline on day one. So it has an enormous symbolic meaning for people in terms of what the United States is willing to do to increase its energy independence. And then and and that moves oil prices instantly. That move moves oil prices instantly. It might not change. It might not change. Right. It might not change the availability of oil overnight, but it changes the perception and that changes prices immediately. Mm -hmm. And that would happen if he made these moves. But based on what we're hearing out of the White House is they're going to go sort of the opposite direction, which is it's a wild time to do that. And you mentioned the sacrifices that Americans are willing to make to a pretty significant extent to help Ukraine and to stand up to Russia. I think there are a lot of American voters who also think, okay, this would not be a brand new thing, sacrifices in the last few years. There have been a lot 
of sacrifices made over the course of this pandemic and now with rampant inflation, people have been sacrificing left and right in a painful, acute way for quite some time. Then to come and ask them to sacrifice more while leaving points on the field, it's a risky proposition politically, no matter what you think of the policy. I don't think we have much of a choice, honestly. Oil prices are going higher no matter what the United States does. We're already seeing, you know, Canada has said that they're banning Russian oil exports. They don't get a lot of oil from Russia. Um, Canada's one of the top four producers in the world. But we are seeing other countries make this move. And you know what? There's always, there is always a way to make up for that gap. Even OPEC is talking about making up for that gap. Uh, Russia needs to be isolated to the greatest extent possible, and we need to get on board with that program. The president may not do it tonight, but I think a lot of people are, are willing to go that route. Meanwhile, optics for the State of the Union tonight. I had proposed just a few weeks ago that the Republicans tap Glenn Youngkin in Virginia to give the response and give it in the House of Delegates down in Richmond, pack the House with all the Republicans who we thought wouldn't be able to get in to Biden's State of the Union because at the time and up until just a few days ago. Oh, COVID's over now, didn't you hear? I, I just got the memo literally walking in the ended. building today. Magically. So this is extraordinary to me, Martha, that they're not even being terribly subtle about it at all, right? They've put out their memos internally that have leaked to the press saying we've got to do things differently on COVID and restrictions because Americans are tired of it. We're going to get wiped out at the polls, on and on. And then literally the day before the president gives this big political speech here in Washington and at the White House and over on Capitol Hill, the mask can go away. Suddenly it's optional. Everyone can sit next to each other. It all gets lifted. They didn't even do some kabuki of like a few weeks ago. They did it yesterday. And I mean, do they think the American people are so stupid that they won't see through this? Because it's it's that transparent. I know. And the irony is that you had that whole back and forth dance between some Democratic governors in states like New Jersey who started dropping it and started you know, saying that kids won't have to wear masks in school after a certain date. We saw it in Rhode Island. And for some reason, it was almost like the federal government saying, oh, well, we're not going to let you tell us what to do. We're waiting for the CDC. When the CDC finally says it's time, then we will we will go along with you. And they were pressuring the CDC. <laughs> yes. Well, what else is new with that, right? right? I mean, that's been going on since the very beginning of the pandemic, one way or the other. Um, but, you know, yeah. I, I mean, people people get it. And, and sometimes they don't even... Nobody, you know, politicians don't seem to care how obvious and obtuse they are with some of these moves. I guess, but you would think they should care, given that they're the ones in charge. And it's so almost insulting the way they've done it, the timeline on which they've done it. I mean, literally, I'm so old that I remember, what was it, three weeks ago when Glenn Youngkin did these things and everyone went crazy a month ago. Oh, yeah. He's going to kill everyone. He's killing the children and all this stuff. And now it's like, oh, never mind. And I saw a quote. I saw a quote today. This was just, you know, earlier this afternoon. Speaker Pelosi was asked by a reporter, are you personally going to wear a mask tonight at the State of the Union? She'll be right behind the president. And she said, no, she's not. She said, if this is what got me, she said, if I had a pre-existing condition, I would wear one. Okay, fair enough. She's in her 80s. I mean, if there's a group to maybe be extra careful, it would be her. But I guess not under these circumstances. That's the choice that she's making. But she also said that she would wear one if she had young children. And I wanted to just put my head through a wall (laughs) because we are two years in and one of the most powerful people in the country 
clearly has absolutely no concept about this virus, how it works, who it affects, because she went out of her way to tell America she would wear that mask tonight if she had young children who are generally just not affected by this virus. We've learned and are it not seems nothing. large transmitters, right? That that's I mean that's the argument. The argument is oh well they're not vaccinated they could get it they could give it to someone else but we see time and time again that they are not efficient transmitters of the virus either. Um, and also if you people, you know what, are someone guy, who could contract have moved it moved on such a long time ago and and decided that they were going to sort of do things the way that made sense to them. Mm-hmm. There's a couple places where they don't have that choice like on an airplane uh, or on a train you don't have that choice for but in no most reason. Places, um, people have moved on they live their lives the way they want to live their lives and Nancy Pelosi can keep her mask on around little kids if she wants <laughs> if she doesn't want to scare them yeah uh, but not tonight with <laughs> she'll she'll tonight. be she'll be seated behind someone who's what 78 she's in her 80s yeah they're not gonna be wearing masks but if there was a little kid around well things might be different because scary little buggers science <laughs> it's amazing well we'll be watching tonight fox news channel team coverage for the state of the union address technically biden's first as martha mentioned a few minutes ago and we look forward to you co-anchoring with brett and all the analysis afterwards good luck tonight break a leg and we'll talk Thank to you, you guy. soon. great to see you home stretch coming up next it's the guy benson show fresh conservative talk guy benson show Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday, State of the Union Day here in Washington, D.C. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free on demand every day. So over the weekend, Saturday Night Live had John Mulaney as the guest host, and there was a sketch that made the rounds that I thought was somewhat entertaining. It was a group of clearly left-leaning younger friends having dinner in somewhere like New York City. And they were wondering if they could finally start to discuss certain things about mask mandates and vaccines without being judged or thrown out of their friend group for broaching the subject. Now that the CDC has made some of these changes that we were just talking about in the last segment with Martha. And I saw a few people mention on social that this is almost like the closest thing you will get to an apology from the cultural left. So we should kind of enjoy it while we can. Here is someone trying to tepidly tiptoe into the subject matter in cut 13. It's like COVID's not over, but it's just going to stop. I don't know how I feel about that. Oh, you know, that reminds me of this article I read. Honey, no one wants to hear about that. (laughs) Well, it was in Bloomberg, and I thought it was interesting. What, uh, what article? Well, Honey. It was just saying how mask mandates had, I don't know, little to no effect on COVID. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's not like I'm anti-mask or anything. I just sometimes wonder if any of the things we did actually helped. Gina. No, no, no. We can talk about this incredibly complicated and emotional topic. Yes, yes, of course. (laughs) So then it goes on. This is my favorite clip from the sketch where they start to get rolling and you can see that they kind of want to say the things, but they're not sure if they should. And they're resisting. There's this inner conflict boiling over cut 14. How does science change? When I make a mistake at work, I don't get to say the science changed. (laughs) At least we had outdoor dining. 
Oh, you mean when they built a smaller restaurant in the street? How is that outdoors? <laughs> oh, my God. Look, I went to a child's birthday party, self-careful, and they did gymnastics in masks. Don't. And then they went into another room and took off their masks to eat pizza. This is the end of me. So did they really need the mask? Oh, no. Did any of us ever need the mask? No! <laughs> it was pretty good. Kind of an admission, perhaps very, very belated, especially involving the kids. But if SNL is coming around, maybe we finally really have reached that tipping point. Thank God. Back here tomorrow, full analysis of the State of the Union address, plus the latest out of Ukraine as well. Until then, have a great night. Thank you for listening. It's The Guy Benson Show. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.